This is a Color Pencil Podcast, session number 129. Welcome to Sharpened Artist, a colored pencil podcast where we discuss in detail all things in and around colored pencils and the colored pencil artist. And now your hosts, Lisa Clow and John Middick. Hello, my name is John Middick of SharpenedArtist.com. I'm joined as usual by Lisa Clow of Lockery Fine Art. Lisa, how are you this fine Monday morning? I am very good. How are you? I am doing never better. So this is a show about colored pencil and the colored pencil artist where we talk about anything in and around art and this art medium. So Lisa, what are we talking about today? We are answering some questions from our listeners. All right. So our first question from Peter here says, I am new to your podcast and have been listening to them all month long. Thank you both for all your reviews, Q&As and interviews with other artists. The question I have is primarily dealing with finalizing colored pencil drawings. In one of your earlier podcasts, John mentioned spraying his final drawing with gloss. I'm used to applying Krylon workable fixative or matte with a charcoal and graphite drawings, but never used or considered using UV or varnish or gloss spray for finalizing, mostly because the final pieces will usually be behind glass anyway. Now that I'm working in colored pencil, could you discuss the use, pros and cons, and reasoning behind each of the products and perhaps advise me on the brands that you like or dislike? I'm sure this topic alone could stand on its own for an entire episode. Thank you all both for what you do for the artist community. All right, well, Peter, thank you very much for the question. Let me talk about what I do use. So what I typically use is Lascaux, I think is how it's pronounced. And uh, we'll put that in the show notes. So Lascaux is a fine art fixative is what it's called. And it's, it's just a very versatile fixative that you can use on just about anything. Charcoal, colored pencil, gouache, watercolor, pastels, graphite, lithographs. I mean, there's so many things you can use it on. What it says about it is that it is a non-matte. Okay, so it does kind of give you this gloss type of finish. But here's a th- here's a funny thing about this one. It it never says it never advertises as a gloss. Um, but I see what I see when I see a finished product with it and it's dried. It it does look like a gloss to me. It it's very similar to a gloss. It has a very nice finish on it, and I really like it. I like it a lot. I've not had any bleeding or anything with that one. So your point, though, about it going behind glass, yeah, there are colored colored pencil artists who don't put any fixative at all on their work, and that's fine. I like just the finish that it gives it, and it makes everything look uniform and balanced is what I like about it. You're not seeing any kind of uh, divots or strokes or anything like that. Everything looks the same with this, and it sort of just illuminates the entire painting whenever you use it. But yeah, if you're doing it behind glass, which most often I'm doing that as well, that's just another layer of protections why I'm doing that. But you don't necessarily need to do that, especially with, you know, the uh, with colored pencil. So yeah, I'm one who does not 
put a, a finish on anything unless I'm using powder blender, then I'm going to use the final fixative that's made by brushandpencil.com. But I have used that one recently. I should have said that. And I really do like it. But yeah, you even I mean, even with that, you know, you you don't you don't necessarily need to. It, if you're using the powder blender, though, you do need to protect yes. it. Yes. But other than that, I really don't find I need it for my colored pencil work. Yeah, you don't need it. No. So, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I frame, frame mine behind glass, and that's really all I need. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess we are not able to do an entire show out of this one question. <laughs> it's <laughs> not as interesting seconds. as you would think it would be. I just don't I don't no, it's find a good qu- it's, a, it's, it's a, a very great good question, question, though. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a question from Karen who asks, when do you think someone can consider or call themselves an artist? I think as soon as you're creating a painting or drawing, you're an artist. That doesn't necessarily mean you're a professional artist. When That's, I think, where you get a, a definite line. An artist is really anyone who's creating a painting or drawing. You created something, you're the artist of that. I mean, what else would you call it? You're not the composer of that piece. Uh, you're the artist of that piece, which makes you yeah. an artist. Now, a professional artist is just somebody who sells their work, who is making a profit from that work. Well, you know, I mean, you can swing the pendulum in both ways in either direction and get a little extreme i mean if if because there are people i've heard that will say okay a professional artist is someone who makes a living from the profit of their work that's exclusively what you know an an artist an artist is if the sale of their work is giving them a living well then in that case i'm not a professional artist neither are you lisa because you make yours from teaching tutorials and not from the sale of your work so if you go in the opposite direction and you say well you can call yourself an artist because, you know, you arranged the lawn in a certain way or you arranged some rocks or whatever. You can go in that direction as well. But I like your point, Lisa, that, yeah, you're an artist. You're not a composer. If, you, if you're creating something, if you're creating art, then I think you can call yourself an artist. But maybe, maybe that professional label is reserved for something else. You know, when people get so huffy over the labels of stuff and they're so you know uptight no this is this and that is that those are generally people i kind of avoid anyway that just want to argue over semantics and you're just like does it matter what difference does it make you know what you go ahead and sit there and argue i'm gonna go over to the easel and create some art that makes me happy yeah and karen call yourself an artist if you're creating art you're an artist i agree all right so michael writes I have a general question. I have been recently experimenting with colored pencils, currently saving up for a full set of polychromos and luminance, and I have I am having a hard time figuring out what to do with foggy mist effects with the colored pencils. So if you were going to draw them without an airbrush, how and what sort of methods would you use? All right, you know, well, there's a lot of different ways, I guess, that you could approach that, and... None of them being wrong, but if you weren't using an airbrush, which I don't use, I know Lisa, you use that all the time, but you could, you know, you could use the same pencils that you're using for whatever the thing is that is in focus or the thing that is not uh, affected by fog or mist and the things that are more clear. And you could just vary the pressure on those pencils in that case, or just use lighter pencils, lighter colored pencils, that is to draw those areas or you could go over it with a white pencil after you're finally done with the entire thing and and uh, you know soften up those areas so that they, it looks like there's an effect of fog or mist you know there's no right or wrong answer to that but uh, 
hey, good luck on uh, getting your full polychromos and luminance pencils. That's exciting. Can't wait till you uh, are able to do that. The one tip that I have for you, if you are going to draw this, test it on another piece of paper first and see which method you like better. There are so many different ways that you can get this. I mean, even if you just go with the two that, that John was talking about, test it on another piece of paper first and see what works best. Because even with the white pencil, maybe an oil base would work better than a wax base. Maybe a gray, a light gray would look better than white. You know, test that out mm -hmm. on another piece of paper before you just take that pencil to your actual project. So we have a question from Miss Watts who writes, at the moment, I'm having trouble creating a logo. Is it okay for me to use one of my original paintings for my logo? And if not, what would you recommend I do to come up with my logo? So here's the thing with logos. I have a logo, but it was never intentional. My logo, the goldfish that I use, happened because I was making a stamp for to, that I could stamp the back of my prints, the matting on the prints, and stamp it that had lawcree.com so people could always find who that came from. If it was gifted to somebody, they knew who the artist was. It was easy for them to find me. And I decided that just writing lawcree.com didn't look interesting enough, so I took goldfish from one of my paintings from... Um, gosh, 10 years ago. And I just did some Photoshop to them and stuck that on there for the stamp. That's where that started. There, I never had this idea, I need a logo, I'm going to come up with one. I just wanted something cute that looked cute next to the lawcree.com. Now, over the years, people started assuming that was my logo, and I just went ahead and kind of started incorporating it as such, and I used those goldfish everywhere. But here's the thing, they're a terrible logo. They are too busy. There's too many lines. There's too much detail. If you do a if you decide you need a logo, which I don't think you do, but if you decide that's something that you want for your art, keep it as simple as possible. One of the things that I'm going to be doing in the next few weeks is reworking mine into something much, much more simple. I still want to keep with the goldfish, but I want to simplify the lines. So you can tell it's a goldfish, but it's not It's not a detailed what I have now. What I have now is the worst example of a logo you can find. Well, maybe not the worst, but it's pretty bad. So I wouldn't recommend necessarily using your painting as a logo. It would be too, I'm assuming it would be too busy unless it's like two colors, a line down the middle or something like that. But I'm going to go ahead and assume it's probably going to be too busy. You want to keep logos very, very simple. And I also don't know that I think every artist needs a logo. I, I'm not sure that that's really necessary. It depends on how you're going to brand stuff for me because of YouTube and all of that. I probably will end up with merchandise at some point. So having a logo would make sense for that. But I, I really don't know if I would say it's necessary, but I will say I think an entire painting being used as a logo would be way too much. Yeah, no, I agree with you. If you're using an original painting or something, yeah, that, that probably wouldn't be a good thing to do. But you could use that in some of your marketing materials or your promotional materials, uh, some of your original paintings, something like that, until you decided on a logo if you really felt like you just absolutely had to have one. But here, here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not saying this about about you at all, but this is what I've seen hold a lot of people back just in business in general, and so we can apply it to art as well, is they'll say, oh, you know, I can't do that right now. I'm working on my website. Oh, I can't do that right now. I am working on my logo. Can't do that right now. I'm working on my signature or something, you know, some, some other thing that that really isn't a good reason not to do other things. And so, yeah, Trying to come up with a logo is just kind of holding you back. It's just kind of this thing that can just get in your way. I don't have a logo. I mean, I have lettering that says sharpened artist. That's all, and it's in a circle. It's not really a logo, and I never intended for it to 
kind of be. It kind of serves as my logo now, but I never really intended that. And I spent a lot of time looking at different options and and a lot of useless time, quite frankly, because <laughs> I never went with any of those. And I everything that I came up with or that I you know looked at, and I actually hired some some people to do certain things, and I never I didn't like any of them, and so I didn't go with any of that, and I just stuck with what I've got and I think it's okay. But yeah, you want it if you are going to have a logo, then you do want it to be something very simple, a vector type of image, not a lot of embellishing and very, you know, just out of the way where people hardly notice it. That's the point of a logo and something that can also serve as uh, something that is black and white or white or grayscale or something like that. And, you know, the the best logos that we know about, you know, people don't even know some of the big companies, you know, we don't even think about what their logo is. Nike, we, we know what that is. But, you don't, you know, a lot of times you don't think about what Amazon's logo is, and it makes a lot of sense, and it's a pretty nice logo. But you don't really sit there and think about Amazon's logo, or I don't. So it's not, my only point about it is it's just not something to get caught up on, and you're probably not doing that, but I'm saying that for the sake of the wider audience that would listen to this. Yeah, and that's one thing they'll tell you, too. If you do much studying with business and marketing, one mm-hmm. thing that they talk about a lot is how many people – and getting their business going, no matter what kind of business it is, will get right. hung up on the logo or hung up on the name, yeah. getting the perfect name, the perfect logo. Yeah. You know, yeah. things that aren't as important is getting your shop up and running and getting the work done. But they'll, they're hung up on this like little kind of semi-insignificant, just do something. If you need to, go to Fiverr and hire someone else to do it for you. You don't. It's not yeah. that yeah. big of a deal. We definitely, I think, make it into, yeah, it's part of your brand. It's part of that. But the logo, the the biggest tip I can give you, if you're going to use it, keep it simple. Do not follow by my example there. Um, now, I do have on my business cards, I've got the, they are in portrait format and the bottom has a colored pencil and airbrush eagle owl. Because so often if I tell someone I work in colored pencil, they think I work in crayon and they're like, oh, that's interesting. And it's like, no, here's my card. Yeah. Here's what yeah, it now see, But and, it's and, simple. Right. And that's it's a good use of your of your art. You know? yeah. You're able to show your art. Yeah. I'm not using it as a logo, but it's an example that fills up the bottom, maybe third of my business card. And then the rest of my business card is just name, website, YouTube. Uh, or I think mm-hmm. my email, too. I think those are my three things I have on there. And even with business cards, I mean, we can talk a bit about that. You want to keep those very, very simple. One big mistake, and I know this isn't your question, but it kind of leads into that. One big mistake I often see artists make, and I was the worst at this. I wanted to fit ev- basically my resume I wanted on my business card. Um, You couldn't read it. It was the writing had to be so small in order to get that kind of information. There's no way anyone could see my phone number or any of that information. I mean, it was just so teeny tiny. Keep it as simple as possible. Very simple. Yeah. Very clean and simple. Yeah, I like that point, too, because a lot of people will get caught up on their business cards, too, and that'll yes. keep them from doing all kinds of stuff. And like, no, I got to get these business cards. I got three months to get these business cards. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you need that. And really, if we are talking about business cards, all you need is a QR code and maybe your name or something if you're an artist, you know, it links over to your website. You don't need to be real complicated about that either. Excellent question, though. So our next question from Heath. Generally, I love photorealism, but my problem is that I want to do large colored pencil pieces, 18 by 24, of various landscapes like mountains, beaches, canyons, etc. I'm stressing out 
at all the complicated details like endless fir trees and other things that I don't necessarily need to be so crispy defined. I like that crispy defined. I, well, I know he what that actually means. said crisply, and you just read it wrong. I like crispy. You're All making right. up and words. <laughs> crisply <laughs> defined. I need to. You know what? This is a good excuse. Hold on. I need to put on my readers. <laughs> it's ridiculous. No wonder the, uh, these people's names are like. Um, uh, I can't figure out who it is. All right. So, do you have any tips on how to make things more painterly? With the pencils. Was that right, Lisa? Yes, it, it you got okay, that right. Thank you. Thank you. You want to try crisply again? Paint, I thought it was painty. Okay. <laughs> so here, so here's, well, here's the thing about that. You know, I mean, if you're doing something very large like that, then generally you don't have to be quite as detailed anyway because people are experiencing it a little further away. They're not up there, you know, they don't have their nose on it like they often do with my little uh, 4 by 4 pieces. <laughs> Just bring up the small things that I usually work on. But the other thing about it is, is that you want to condense down these images, these shapes. And so if you're thinking about fir trees, you know, you, you, don't, you don't have to sit there and think about all the little, little, little details. You're going to think about that as a mass all these things that can be small, you think about it in mass at first. You think about what, you know, these larger shapes could be. And, I, you know, I don't think it's quite as daunting as maybe what you're thinking at first. If you kind of think of it in that way and then you're breaking down these these images and you think about I don't I, for me I think about realism in an abstract way anyway. I usually think about the values, uh, the light and the values, you know, the light and the shadows. So I'm separating it out like that anyway. I'm thinking about the abstract images anyway and then when you get done with creating those abstract images, you have, you know, a realistic piece. And so I don't think you're going to necessarily need to handle that any differently than what you would uh, something that you know that you would work on that might be you know a nine by eleven or something like that. But I don't know. Do you have something to to add to that, Lisa? Yeah, when when you're tra- talking about getting the details in there and trying to get a more painterly feel, when you want to get something to look a little bit more painterly, you, it generally comes down to letting colors and sections overlap each other. So I've got a section of the tree that's a deep, deep green, and I've got a section of the tree that is a light lime green. I want to overlap those colors where they meet. I want to let them look like they somewhat blend into each other. I don't oh, want a paint-by-number harshness there. And I think that's really what's going to give you more of a painter feel is just overlapping some of those edges so one flows into the next more smoothly versus the harsh crisp lines that you would get with the sharper details. Our next question. I have a couple of questions regarding Pixabay. I recently read a comment on colored pencils for beginners in relation to a portrait that was sent in of a very famous photo from National Geographic that was on the cover a few decades ago. The artist gave credit to Pixabay, but the comment was that they were surprised that the artist got it from Pixabay and that just because it was on Pixabay doesn't mean that it's copyright free. Is this true? And if so, how do we know which ones aren't copyright free? The other question is about the buy us a coffee feature on Pixabay. What is that all about? Should we send in money? And if so, how much? How do we know who gets it? Okay, I've gone way over my limit of questions. Sorry. I thought those photos were free. I'm confused. 
Okay, so here's the thing with Pixabay, and this is really going to be the case anytime that you've got free photos, where whether it be paintmyphoto.com, one of the photo groups on Facebook, you are going to have people who steal someone else's photo and upload it like it's their own, telling you you have royalty-free, that you have the rights to use it in your artwork. That person didn't have permission from the original photographer to do it. They're a thief, and they're pretending it's theirs. I don't know why. I, I've seen so many people do this, and I don't know if they're trying to get attention. They want praise, but they don't want to do the work. I'm really not sure what the motivation is behind it, but it happens. And so in this case, if they're the National Geographic photo, I'm pretty sure I know which one you're talking about because it's one that artists have been redrawing for years. It's a beautiful photo. No, the it, just because it's on... Is it the one of the girl uh, looking like, like has really, a very piercing yes. look? Yes. I'm okay. pretty sure we're talking about the, the same one. Her head's yeah. somewhat covered. Yeah, she's got a head yeah. cover. Yeah, yeah. So she, the, here's the thing. If you don't have rights from the original photographer, no, you don't have rights. And just because that was on Pixabay does not mean that it was royalty-free. And that photo is not royalty-free. Whether or not the photographer is okay with artists doing that or not, I don't know. But it is not royalty-free just because it's on Pixabay. What's happening is you've had somebody steal it and then repost it, pretending that they have the right to tell you. And, and Pixabay is pretty good when they get reported. People will try to get those photos taken down as quickly as possible. The problem is, like you said, how do we know which ones are which? We don't. The only way that you're going to know for absolute certain that you have rights to use that photo is if you take it yourself or if you get that photo from someone you trust. Like with me, with Patreon, I, I provide reference photos. Jason Morgan does wildlife reference photos. Stuff where you're buying a photo, where you're paying for one, essentially, or you're taking it yourself. But Pixabay, that's a problem with them. One of the things that I like to do, because I use them all the time, what I do is I do a Google search. I use Google Chrome, and I do a Google image search and see if I can find anywhere where that photo comes up on a photographer's website. Now, in a case like this, where we're talking about a famous National Geographic photo, we know that's not royalty-free. You just, if it was in a magazine, you just have to know it is, you do not have permission to use it for something like that. But, I mean, there may be a 1% chance that it was some used as a copyright photo and used in the magazine as such, but more often than not, you do not have rights to that photo or you're not going to have rights. But what I'll try to do is just see if I can find who the original photographer was. If that photo comes up on a photographer's website and that that photographer is not the one who ups, uploaded it to Pixabay, I know I probably don't have rights to use it. Now, sometimes I'll come up with a photo, like I recently painted a fox on Pixabay. I couldn't find the photographer, but that fox is everywhere on the internet. So, I mean, it's being used left and right. I don't think photographers out that, you know, that a photographer is trying to be very protective of it. So I went ahead and took the chance and used it. But we d there's no way to know for, for a certain if we don't know who that original photographer was. And one of the things that you'll have happen a lot on Pixabay is one photographer or one person will upload it, someone else will download it and re-upload it to their account. But it's all considered creative commons or you know the zero creative commons so everyone has rights one person i know of people who will take photos taken from pixabay take them over to fine art america and sell prints claiming they're the original photographer when they were not but legally they can do that it's shady because they're claiming that they're the photographer when they were not but they can legally make prints of that because it's royalty free so you're going to see some really weird stuff with that and i mean I can tell you to be careful, but there's no guarantee one way or another, even with me when I use stuff with them. I'm always taking that risk. And so what I try to do when I use stuff from Pixabay is change it so it's not as recognizable as the original photo. 
um, certain things, certain angles, you know, you can only go so far with that. But I always try to change it when, whenever possible. There are a few exceptions, like the fox that I painted, that was fairly close to what the original was. But yeah, there's no guarantee. I, if you know it was something on National Geographic, you don't have rights for it. So just assume that one's out, not allowed to be there. And it will eventually get taken down from Pixabay when enough people report it as not belonging there. But you have people do it often enough. Another thing that I like to do with Pixabay, I know I'm talking a lot about this, but there's so much information to cover. One thing that I do with Pixabay is I check to see who the photographer was. If the photographer is somebody who has only uploaded 10, 11, 12 things, probably not going to go with them, no matter how much I like that photo, because I don't consider them trustworthy yet. Usually, if you've got a photographer who's been on there for a while, who's been uploading for a while, look through their comments. People will call them out, usually, if they notice that it's something being stolen. But you can find a lot of stuff as far as little things like that. Those are just little tricks that I use, but none of it is a guarantee. Now, as far as the bias a coffee feature, what that is, when you download a photo from from Pixabay, you'll have a thing coming up asking you to buy a, a coffee for the photographer. It's just giving them a donation for having taken the photo. I don't use it because I have no way of knowing for certain that they are the original photographer because you'll have the same photo uploaded by several people over there because they're all Creative Commons. So they'll take it, they'll crop it, re-upload it. I don't know which one was the original photographer. So no, it's not a feature that I personally use. Um, that's just me. Now, there are other people on on Pixabay that will upload stuff like Upsplash or Usplash. I forget which one it is. But that's a user on Pixabay who also has their own photo account that they sell photos to, from. And they use Pixabay as a way, here's some free ones for you guys to try to get you over to their website. I trust them. I've... Never heard of there being a problem with that account. So, I mean, you'll figure out which accounts seem to be a little bit safer like that because I know that's a profession, that's an actual company. So, like I was saying before, you'll find people that you can trust, people that you kind of go, eh, you've uploaded 10 things and these look super professional. That's the other thing for me that's kind of a red flag. If the photos are too good, that's when I go, huh. That, that I wonder if you're really the photographer or if you're one of the people who is just trying to take credit as for someone else's work. So I know that I'm probably just confusing you even more than you already were. But unfortunately, yes, that is a website that's intended for royalty-free photos, but anyone can upload, which means I can go steal a photo from a great photographer and upload it. And until I get caught, other people are over there downloading that photo thinking they have rights to it when no one really does but the original photographer. So I hope that I'd say I hope it cleared it up, but I'm pretty sure I confused you even more. Well, okay. So do you see why Lisa and I both recommend just take your own photos? Yeah. It makes it so much easier. Yeah. So the other thing about it is, yeah, you do, you have to do your own research. And listen, Google is not God. And if you do a Google search and it doesn't come up, that does not necessarily always mean no. that it it is, you know, in the public domain and that it's royalty free. So just keep that in mind. It's too, just taking that, steps that, towards that. It, well, yeah, no, no, it's you should do that. I mean, that's some due diligence that you should go through. But I, I just want to put that out there that, yeah, it, it does not mean that it, you know, it, be, it belongs to that photographer that you purchased it from or that you got it from. So, yeah. Now, the thing about buying a cup of coffee or whatever, I mean, 
you know, we we have to. I guess we just have to. Tr- you have to trust if you want to, Pixabay that they're honest in dealing with their photographers. I mean, they, they listen. They're they're making money somehow, and if they want to put that up there, you know, and say, okay, this this can be a donation to that photographer. That's that's kind of that is a small way of showing some appreciation to a photographer. That's all that that is. It's kind of like the tip jar on YouTube. Yeah, that's all it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't hardly ever use any of these sites. I just take my own photo references and I just have a large collection to choose from. And and sometimes I take hundreds and they're terrible. So <laughs> you have that problem when you take your own photos. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you can go to the Library of Congress and look for photos that are in the public domain, things like that. But yeah, you're always going to run up against this kind of problem and you have to do your own research on that. And you have to think about what kind of reputation you want then as uh, as an artist. What, you know, you're, you know, what do you want to be known for? What is it okay that you're going to use a photo and paint from a photo that everyone else does even though they know it's not in the public domain or that they don't have the rights to do it. So you just have to make that decision for yourself. And I like to try to change I mean uh, there are occasions where I will keep it pretty close to the reference photo and just crop it and whatever um, because something about that photo spoke to me and I just wanted to recreate it. But I always kind of have in the back of my head I know if I'm ever contacted by the photographer I will take that photo down. I will take any videos I've made from it down. All of it, I'm willing to take down. I know I'm taking that risk. Now, for me, I've created thousands and thousands of paintings. So taking one down, not a big deal for me. If you're newer, that might be more detrimental to you. But it's something that I'm willing to do. So that's, and hopefully, I think most photographers, if they knew that the photo came from Pixabay, that it was up there illegally, I don't think that they're going to try to sue you. But you never know. They technically have the right to. They have the right to, but it would be a hard job on some of the photos that get shared and passed around. Yeah. You know, I don't think National Geographic is going to go after you, but do you want to be one of those artists? You know, you have to ask yourself that. And I'm okay with painting the same thing everyone else does, but I almost always, like I said, I change mine. I I try to adjust colors. I try to improve on it. I try to make differences in whatever it is I'm working on. I I mentioned this earlier. I'm working on uh, a sea otter, and I changed the colors from my reference photo. My reference photo, the water was very gray, very muddy. I made it bright turquoise. So, you know, I've changed it. Mine's not going to look like everybody else's. So I thought it was a porcupine. Is it a sea otter? I'm kidding. Okay. I'm giving you a blank (laughs) look. You just can't see it right now. I was like, what in the world? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I mean, it's just something that you have to be aware of. I don't want to discourage you until you don't ever use Pixabay. I use them all the time. It's just something that you need to be aware of and try to do your homework, do your research on certain photos. If the photo looks too good to be true, there's a good chance it might be. Do a Google image search. And I just use that extension on Google Chrome where I right click Google image for that search or search for that image. And I just try to find out where it comes from. And I've done that before when I'll find a photo that I really like, even if it's not from Pixabay. There was an owl that I really wanted to draw, a snowy owl, a while back. So I did a Google image search, found out who the original photographer was. I want to say he was somewhere in the Ukraine. I don't remember. But he was overseas somewhere. And he, amazing photographer, I told him what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a video out of it and create the artwork and prints and all that. And he gave me permission to do all of that. So the Google image search... You can find the photographer and then feel more confident because I have in writing where this photographer gave me permission. 
So that makes me much more comfortable in using an image if I can find the photographer. But sometimes you can't and you decide whether or not you want to take the risk if you trust that it really is that person on, on Pixabay. And like I said, if it's somebody who has a lot of photos, usually those people are more legitimate. I am a little bit more weary of somebody who has only 10 photos. If, the, if those 10 photos look professional, it makes me go, huh. That's a little different, but you have a lot of people who are amateur photographers who have great equipment and they get wonderful shots and they're just willing to share it with everybody. So it's it really sucks that you have people that take advantage of that and try to lie about things and make it, you know, make the rest of yeah. us go, oh, is this person real? Can I really use this image? Can I not? When more more often than not, I would say the images are legitimate. Flickr's always been a real good one for that, too. You have direct access yeah. and can have conversations with the photographer and get the rights to those images. I've done that for website branding in the past for websites I've worked on. Yeah, that that's, you know, that's another option for you right there. And it's not a lot of searching around. You just go right there inside of the uh, Flickr website. All right, so maybe you have a burning question and we'd love to hear what that question is. You can go over to sharpenedartist.com slash Q&A and Lisa, what is what is yours? Let's just put yours out there too. If you go to lawcree.com slash FAQ, that's where I've got my frequently asked questions. And if I don't answer your question or if there's not an answer there, there is a section where you can submit a question to be answered in either one of my videos or here on the podcast. Awesome. All right, so... We would uh, love to hear any questions regarding colored pencil or art business or marketing or anything like that. That would be great. And if we haven't said it in a while, we're so happy that you join us week to week. This podcast comes out every week. I had someone recently ask me about that. It's like, you're doing the podcast again? Great. We never <laughs> stopped doing the podcast. Lisa and I have been doing the podcast for over two years now. So, yeah, it's still coming out every Monday. And if you like the podcast, tell someone else about it or go over to Apple Podcasts now and uh, give us a rating and or a review. And we would appreciate that. You can interact with us on Facebook in the Colored Pencil Podcast group. You can email us podcast at sharpenedartist.com. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. All the show notes can be found at www.sharpenedartist.com. I think I got through it. Um, yeah, you. I'm not going to tell you my uh, opinion on things anymore. You're just going to steal them and wear them all out for yourself, you thief. Your brain infection is infection, infecting me. Now neither one of us can talk. No, you can't. I don't care. All right. <laughs> so...